I really believe you must collect your principles over time. You must collect your core values and have them evolve. You started with simple ones like like the golden rule, but you've got to evolve them over time. Hey there, my name is Kim, and this is my podcast, Power Up Your Performance. I believe that we have the power to rewrite our stories, change the trajectory of our lives, pour love into the world, conquer monumental challenges, and that movement can be a catalyst for change. Let's grow together. Welcome to Power Up Your Performance. Hey, hey, welcome to the show. My name is Kim Peek, and I'm so happy you're spending time with me here today. If you've listened to this podcast for any time at all, you know that I am fascinated by performance. You might have noticed that there's a question that keeps popping up in interview after interview. I have just been on this quest to find out what makes one person more resilient and adaptable while somebody else in the same position might struggle to change their environment or not be able to make changes that will help them thrive? Why are some people able to rise to meet challenges while others in the same exact position find this challenging? Today's guest is an example of someone who took all the adversity that came his way and created a beautiful life. It was such a treat to have this conversation with Ed Hagem. Our interview started by discussing his book on the road less traveled, an unlikely journey from the orphanage to the boardroom. Ed grew up in and out of foster care, which you'll hear about in this interview, with no consistent support system. Yet, he became a Wall Street executive and held senior management positions with numerous high-profile firms. At a young age, Ed learned to survive by keeping himself strong and focused. Step by step, he turned his life around, eventually living the American dream. And if that was not enough, Ed also gave the University of Rochester its single largest donation in history, $30 million, to support scholarships and endow the Edmund A. Hagem School of Engineering and Applied Science. Not bad for a guy who spent his early childhood jumping from foster care home to foster home. Through the Hagem Family Foundation, he has made generous donations to organizations that promote education, healthcare, arts, culture, and conservation. I spoke with Ed for over an hour, but to keep this episode on the shorter side, I've edited out some pieces of the conversation. So you might pick up a few places where the topic changes abruptly. Ed had so much amazing wisdom to share. It was so much fun to talk and just listen to him share about his life and the lessons he's learned along the way. Ed also has a new book out April 4th, The Island of the Four Peas, a modern fable about preparing for your future. I know you're going to love this interview with Ed Hagem. Welcome to the show. I am so excited to talk to you today. Well, it's so good to be here. Thank you for inviting me. So you started out with kind of a rough life. You're three years old. Your mom and dad get divorced. Your mom takes you to St. Louis, separates you from your dad. And then your dad, on his, I think, second visit, comes to see you and takes you on a little road trip. What happens from there? Well, essentially, my father got uh, visiting rights on Sunday, $5 a week in alimony and child support. And so he drove to St. Louis 1,800 miles from Los Angeles. Wow. And uh, he found me somewhere, as he said, unkept, because when we arrived, my mother arrived 
you know, she had four siblings. And in 1939, it wasn't a good time to arrive at, at your parents' home and saying, I just got divorced and I had this little three-year-old here. So we weren't exactly welcome. And my father came and said, instead of taking me to the movies, he just got back on Highway 66. And three or four days later, we were back in Los Angeles. Called my mother and said, don't look for us. And she, as a woman, and I even, even to her death, she was a thinker, not a feeler. She was very practical. And she'd gotten home and it hadn't worked. And she said, well, you know, maybe I made a mistake. Maybe he'd better off with his father. My father was the opposite. He was not a thinker and he was a feeler. He was very emotional. He wanted me no matter what. Of course, when he got me back to Los Angeles, having a three-year-old and, you know, a 40-year-old man with nobody, no, no real means. He wasn't, wasn't a boy employed at the time. It was very difficult. But he told her not to look for us. And she didn't. Uh, and she's, you know, people ask why she gave me up. And, you know, you haven't read the end of the book, but I do find my mother 60 years later. Dad told me she died. And I, for the rest of my first 60 years, I told people she died when I was three. I believed it until something happened. You'll see in the book what happened. Uh, uh, I decided that uh, I had to go a bunch of letters my father left after he died. And I went, to, went into them and found some letters that proved that she didn't die. Well, we can get into that. But anyway, so dad and I lived together for about a year and a half. But he was early on was a, came as an immigrant in 1900. Did very well through the 20s because he got interested in something called radio, which was a technology at the time, which worked for RCA, made a lot of money. I mean, the picture in, in the book shows he had his own airplane, he had buildings he owned, he had a portfolio, he had a house. And in 2933, he lost everything, everything. And so, he, as he said to me, he said, you know, in 33, I had a car and a box of cigars, and I had to make a decision between committing suicide and driving to California. So good thing for me, he decided to drive to California. But on the way to California, he stopped at a cousin's house, my mother's father. And basically, that she had five children and a woman was, and my, my mother was basically working in a store. She didn't like it. And here was this handsome guy with a car. And in two weeks, it fell in love and got married. Shocking story. Went on to California. The streets weren't paved with gold. And the first six years of their marriage was terrible, as they said she and he both said the only happiness they had was the birth, my birth in 1936. And, uh, but my father, you know, was a merchant marine. So even the two years we spent together, he spent most of the time at sea as a radio operator aboard a ship. And in 1941, he was either drafted or volunteered for the war, like a commissioned officer in the merchant marines. And I was then put in a series of Catholic foster homes. And that's the beginning of the story. I was also brought up in a Catholic schools five Catholic schools, and we were Jewish. I mean, I didn't know we were Jewish. I didn't know it. In fact, in one of my letters in the book, I, you probably haven't gotten to it, I asked my father for the bas- baptismal records. So he, he said, he didn't ask for me because obviously we didn't have a baptismal record. Uh, but because I wanted to be a good Christian and, and, and take my first communion. So, you know, because I live with these people and everyone in a Catholic school. No, I died. I, I actually... Was an altar boy for a while until I found out that I wasn't baptized. So I had told what those experiences were unique. I was born in a Catholic hospital. That's how I got into the Catholic welfare system. And, uh, you know, so that was unusual. And I must say, people ask me, what are your values? That's one of my values. It came out of the teaching of the nuns. They made very clear. You know, they, they taught the gold rule, they threw in the Ten Commandments, and, you know, you sort of learn those things. And, and by rote. I am super curious because I know that the statistics are not great 
for kids coming out of the foster care system to be able to launch themselves into life and be successful, hold down a job and do all the adulting that we're expected to do whenever you're legally in your state able to leave the foster care system. So what do you think made you different? I mean, you talked a little bit about how all of this bouncing around made you resilient, but a lot of foster kids bounce around and have a face abuse. And so, so what made you, how did this hit you differently? So that you became the major success in life. That is the $64 million question. And I've I've done a lot of thinking about it. One thing, of course, with my father, although he abandoned me, if you'll see in the book three times, three very definite times, he sort of left me. He basically would write me constantly, or when 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 we were together, he would send me principles. You know, cleanliness is next to godliness. Always dress well, work hard. He sent those messages and he's the only thing I had. He didn't have any mother. I didn't have any, I had no family whatsoever, no relatives. In fact, I always say I was probably the only person in the world that went through four graduations and nobody came to any of them. <laughs> but no, but that, you know, but, but he sent those messages. That was one thing. The second thing is with nuns, you know, they, you know foster care. Yeah. I, at home, it was great, but at school, they were very good and they made, made you do things. For example, in the, you know, in the third grade, I can remember doing all my multiplication tables because you sip in the morning. You did that. The third thing, which is kind of curious, I was taken by the movies. And in those days, the movies had good guys. You know, John Wayne always did the right thing. You know, Jimmy Stewart was always a good guy. And Saturday afternoon was the, the day when, you know, you could, you lost yourself. You weren't in this not such a good situation. You didn't, not that you didn't have parents and things were good. You went to the movies and it captured me. And I look back at that. You know, I really want to be like that guy, you know, or, you know, and they, you know they, obviously at the end of every movie, they smoked a cigarette before they died, but that was different. <laughs> you know, those days was different. But the, with all the, there were war movies, the, you know, the, the, uh, any cowboy movies, they were very good. So there's it's kind of three things. And I guess I'll, I have a, I have a little bit of luck. I had, I had decent genes. I was very good in math and math in those days. So that sort of put me ahead. Although my report cards at the Catholic schools, I remember she said, and he seems like a smart boy, but he's so mischievous. So I had a mathematical capability. I always had it all my life. So, so there's a, there is a gene combination. I tell people that one of the most important things and what you're digging into is, is self. And self is made up by genes and what happens to you and the impact, the interface between those two things, how you spend your, your first 18 to 25 years. And I had that when I had the math gene, which was a good one, uh, but I also just, I happened to, I really felt early on, I really wanted to be somebody. And my father put that into me too. He basically said, you will be great. And so unconditional love is one of the other things that you have to have. You have to have somebody in your life who believes in you. One, one ghostwriter I had when I was writing it wanted me to hate my father. And I said, I didn't hate my father. I love my father. I had to. He was all I had. But there's a, there's a tough question. And that's why foster parents that are good do develop kids that, you know, come out of it, but it's hard. And, uh, uh, you know, they, they have to be, and that's why religion is so important in many respects. And we've lost a lot of that. Now, you also talk about the importance of being faithful to your core values. Can you talk a little bit about what kind of core values do you have that you feel like shaped you into who you became or who you are? Now, this, this doing to others. 
you know, this golden rule is corny, but it's so true. You just think about that all day long. And it's all through my life. I mean, I got that book came so developed. Let me just sort of go through. My passion ended up, I found it in college, was to really help people do better than they thought they could. That became yeah, a core value. And it really because if you really, if people feel you're trying to help them, okay? But you got to take that in a little step. If you believe that, and that's one of your core values, you got to take the step that you got to recognize that you can go very far if you don't care who gets the credit. So when you're helping people do better than they think they can, if they do it, don't take the credit. Give them the credit. And then, of course, take a step further. And this, you know, these are what I call my, my four Ps, the principles. This principle goes into the fact that later on in my life, whatever in my late 40s, early 50s, I started to deflect credit. And it's a very interesting experience when you deflect credit. I said, Kim, you know, Kim says, Ed, you did a great job. Kim, you know, I did okay. But, you know, Mary Jane really helped, you know, she was the one who put the script together. She's the one that did the writing. You know, I just do the talking. What happened? Kim says, wow, this guy is pretty, you know, he's pretty generous. By the way, then you feel good. Now, when Mary Jane hears that I've talked about her, she feels good and I feel good. So deflected credit is a very sophisticated principle. But if you try it out sometime, you know, it really worked. When someone says to you, God, Kim, you did great. Wait a second. You know, John really helped, you know, and you find out that. So that, that is not, it's not a trick. It's something you really believe in. And of course, I believe nobody, you know, uh, pardon the expression, I'll give you a cliche. It's my cliche though. Life is team sport. You never do anything by yourself. I mean, it just, it just isn't anymore. There was a one point in time where there was the lone cowboy. We did all by, but not anymore. Today's world with the requirements for technology and so on, you're never alone. So I, I've wandered off a bit, but my core values, and I, by the way, I believe that's why I wrote this book called The Four Ps, which is coming out in April. I really believe you must collect your principles over time. You must collect your core values and have them evolve. You started with simple ones like the golden rule, but you've got to evolve them over time. And I, I've, I used to have a wall full, of, a wall full of principles that I would follow. And by the way, they change over time, right? Right now, at my age, say, what's, what is your most important core value? It's gratitude. Really and grateful for living this long and having, and even, even this, this last experience, I mean, having the ability to write a book and have people like you be interested in it, it's really, I'm very, very lucky in that respect. So people ask me how you are, because my age, they, they want an organ symphony, you know, this hurts and that hurts. I don't give them organ symphony. I say I'm grateful. And, you know, it shuts things down pretty quickly. So that's sort of the core values, but you've got to collect them. There's nobody that has starts over with core values and you've got to throw some core, some values away. Early on, some values don't work for you, only work when you're young. So, but it's a collection. Do you think that if you grow up in an environment where people don't talk this way, where we don't talk about values or, you know, you just, you really, really have a bad circumstance, how do you help somebody develop and even begin that thought process of what are my core values? What do I believe? What is good? What is right? Well, you know, it's a teacher, it's a coach, it's a cousin, it's somebody you you ally with, and 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 it's also a belief. Again, the Catholic Church gave the belief: if you did right, you would do well. You can instill that in someone. And by the way, if, if you do, if you did do right, you'll do well. But it isn't easy. You've got to communicate to people that you got to every time you fall down, you got to get back up again. But it works, and that's why I want to. I've written this book, and that's why. I want people to believe that anything is possible. I mean, four foot, six, 
60 pounds and five foster homes with nobody, no relatives whatsoever. I ended up over time, I always say I went from a leather jacket to the chairman of the board for 50 years and made one of the largest, largest contributions in the history of the university. So it can be done. That's not easy. And you may, some people get all the way, some people go farther. But you got to convince people, first of all, that it's doable. And in America, that's obviously doable. People like me, I'm not, I'm not unusual. There are a lot of people that have done it. And they recognize it's not easy. And then, and then where the other, my cliches, which I love, and I developed this from book, early failure is a gift. My thought about life is it's in four parts, self, family, work, and community, community by word for giving back. And by the way, de- by definition, you're always out of balance. Because just like I just described, you're always focused on one of them. If you focus on you work too much, your family will suffer. And the key to life is to figure out how out of focus you are and slowly move back toward focus. But you'll never be completely in focus by definition. I mean, it would be in balance because in order to be successful, you must focus. So it's a contradictory experience. But it's all right. I mean, but when I went to work for Lear and Brothers, I called the family in and said, this is going to be a tough tour here. And you're not going to see the old man very much. I'm be working very hard. Let everybody know. And it worked out, but it still wasn't a great period. When you focus on something, and then like, for example, when I took over as chairman of the board of trustees at the University of Rochester, I basically closed my business. I wasn't going to run a business and be chairman of the board of a, of a university that has a $4 billion budget and 30,000 employees. Are you looking for unique gifts? Maybe a cute t-shirt to wear to the Taylor Swift concert or gifts for teachers, nurses, or that bachelorette party that's coming up? Check out our Etsy store, Expressions by Iris. Get the link in the show notes and then show up with style and sass this spring. So you talked, you've talked a lot about what I would call philanthropy, being generous. You're clearly a very generous person and you have a big heart and want to help people succeed. So I want to talk a little bit about that fourth thing you mentioned, the community or giving back. What inspired you? What helped you? to develop in that way? Because not everybody who has the means is generous either. Oh, my God, I'm, I'm so grateful what was being given to me to give back. And by the way, one of the things in giving back, once you start doing it, you find it is the greatest satisfaction. I've made a reasonable amount of money in my life and I've been successful in my businesses and people in my business were very nice to me that they give me plaques and so forth and so on. When you give a scholarship to someone and she, this is my, one of my postal ladies, She's an optical engineering major. She's four feet. She's at least five feet. She's a concert penis, a concert violinist. She just got married and she's got a PhD in optical engineering. And she stood up on a, on a stage in front of a couple hundred people and said, if it wasn't Mr. Hagem, I wouldn't be here. I mean, you couldn't ask for any more than that. You really couldn't. No, you, you, just, you just can't. So the satisfaction you get out of giving, you know, is really the greatest satisfaction. And maybe the reason we're put on this planet just to give back. You don't have to give back like I've given back. I'm very lucky. I can give a lot back. One of my, one of my girlfriends at university, she, she has one, one scholarship at a time, but she knows those kids much better than I know my 200 scholarship students I have. That's her thing. She wants to, and she lives with me. She goes to their weddings. She sees them. She gets them jobs and so forth. One scholarship. And you can do that if you're reasonably successful or one something, whatever it might be. So, but the giving back part of it, you know, it's almost automatic in my mind. And it's part, if you recognize these, these are the real four parts of life, comes a time, or maybe it's not early in life, that giving back becomes very important. Because what you leave behind that's permanent is really, you know, almost the most important thing is your family, obviously. 
That's what you really buy. Beyond that, to contribute to something that stays long after you're gone, it's a pretty important experience. Making the world as corny, making the world a little better than you left it, or a university or a school or whatever it might be. I think that's what really turns you on. And if, once you get that feeling, you know, you re- I can't wait to give, find something else to give to. Giving back like that, you get terrific return on it. So it's a little bit, you know, a little selfish because you basically, I'm doing it because I really enjoy it, but you are helping people. And uh, it is it is that that last and most important thing, really. What do we put on the planet for to make it a little better? How do you do that? Help people. In fact, Scott Peck, who wrote a book called The Road Less Traveled, not On the Road Less Traveled. He sold 20 million copies. So I'm kind of like to catch up with him. He said that basically love is giving back to others. And so, you know, this is, and, and I, I get terrific satisfaction out of it. He changed children's lives. He changed, you know, changed their lives completely. to allow them to do things they couldn't do otherwise. And so, you know, those are the returns you get. Uh, you know, but, but I think you can give back to a lot of different things. I mean, and, and get, get away. But if you first start off with my thesis that life has four parts, then you automatically have to come to this idea of what I call community. And by the way, you give your time as well as funds. Now, giving your time, working in a soup kitchen. I always use the example of a friend of mine. He was a specialist in curvature of the spine. When he graduated medical school, he could have gone any place in America. Where'd he go? Ethiopia. Because in Ethiopia, there's one doctor, I guess, in Africa that does what he does. And so he had enormous demand for his product. And after 30 years, I mean, the, the smiles on people's faces, the lives he changed, the lives he saved, so forth. You know, so there's, there's the other side of giving back. You can start off with a giving back mentality. But, but I think that somewhere in your lifetime, give it a try. People say, that's that your question. People say, what do you, how do you, what do you say? Give it a try and see how you feel. And, and if you don't feel good, then do something else. But I find people spend time, you know, family is important. You can spend your enormous amount of time on family. It can work out really well. And you may not need to give back too much. But I think that your, even your kids will recognize when you start giving back, they change a little bit. I started with the kids very early saying, whatever, when, when they were in high school, I'd, I'd match them five to one when they're in college, two to one, now I match them one to one. So whatever they give, so it's fine. They'll learn how to do it. And I think it's very healthy. But it is a... It's, it's something you have to do. So you also talked about a new book that you have coming out in April. And yes. tell me again what the four P's are. The four P's are something I've lived. I, I wrote it when I was giving graduation speeches at the University of Rochester. But it's find your passions, find your principles, find your partners, and find your plans. And what it is basically is the language that you develop in talking to yourself, to your children, to your grandchildren, even to your friends. You ask people, what is your passion? What turns you on? What makes you take two steps at a time? And how does that build passions evolve? You know, may want to be an astronaut when you're five years old. You know, when I got to high school, you know, my passions were math and science, baseball and basketball and girls. At the college, that morphed. You know, after my freshman year, I realized I wasn't going to be a professional athlete. So I played freshman baseball and basketball. That morphed into extra activities and, and intramural sports. I never gave up sports. But those extra activities, I ended up running a humor magazine. I started one. Everybody was against it. The president was against it. Provost was against it. Library was against it. It's going to be terrible. But I put 30 people together and we created something from nothing. And what I found that that was really my passion was putting groups of people together, solve a problem, produce a product, create a program. And in that, I learned, as I said, I really got a kick out of helping people do things that 
better than they thought they could. I also learned about how you put people together, like partners, which is the third P. You find partners who can do things that you can't do. I had to find a cartoonist. I thought I could draw cartoons. And you find people who do things better than you could do them. And the best of all, I find, is you find people who do things you do well, but you don't want to do. You have those three kind of partners, you end up doing things that you do well, that you like to do. And so those are the kinds of things. So my passions changed completely into much more of a management mentality, even though I was an engineer. But I started to learn that. They didn't know at the time that that was my passion. I just happened to do it. And But I, look, if I didn't morph from sports, which would have taken a lot of my time in the next curricular activities, I never would have gotten a chance to do that. So that changed. And you know, my passion now is, is, is writing these books and communicating to people like you. So my passion changed completely. And, you know, I had a passion for work. I, I love the stock market. That was my, one of my passions. I, I still spend, you know, a reasonable amount of time. You're looking back at me, the machine is still working because I believe it's, it's an intellectual video game, which, you know, keeps me very, very, you know, you can you talk to people about the stock market because it is basically a fever pitch of the world. It's, a, it's what the world is thinking about at all points in time. So, so that, you know, find your passions, find your principles, find those rules you want to follow. Find those lines you won't cross early on as early and get those principles because when you're young, it's pretty easy. Later on, the lines get pretty fuzzy. If you got these principles set up here in business, and I said, you, you evolve there. Find those partners. I talked about that. Then when you get all done, right? I, I sat down and talked to a group of college students. And Ed, you give them, and you probably say the same thing. You give us too many ideas. Give me one idea I can use right now. I said, sit down, write down where you want to go and how you think you might get there. Write it down. So I want people to write their plans down. But while they're writing them down, thinking about them, I want them to think about what are the, what are the waves, what are the themes, what are the changes in their lifetime that somehow they can get their wind at their back. Because you read biographies, you'll find out that most people get the, that are successful get the wind at their back at a point in time. They find something, a theme that's trending, whatever it might be. And I discuss how you find those themes. My case, I became the CEO of an investment bank in 1983. And 20 years later, we sold it for, you know, too much money. And we, everybody was successful. We grew it from, from 20 million revenues to a half a billion, from 70 employees to 800. It was a wonderful story. And everybody said, oh, I did a great job. I did do a good job, but stock market went up 10 times during that period. So I had the wind at my back. You find most people that's the case. So I, people, I said, when you're thinking about writing down where you want to go, and by the way, just like my friend who was the surgeon, the wind was at his back in, in, in Africa because there was such a great demand. It was unsatisfied need for curvature of spine surgery. So he did, he wasn't seeking, I, I was seeking financial wealth. There's no two ways about that because being poor is one of the other positive about being poor. You're driven, you're driven to, to get financial security. And you get halfway through your life and you realize that it's a habit. It's a habit of, of trying to secure financial security. The opposite that happens to kids in wealthy families. They have no drive for financial. So they get in the habit of not seeking it. It's not bad. It's just that, that those are the facts. But halfway through my life, I, you know, I had this sort of habit of trying to seek to make money and, and get financial security. So, and even today, I mean, I don't need, need to work as hard as I do, but I do. I still struggle with making investments and trying to make money and so forth and so on. Now, of course, to give it away, but still, I mean, I'd say it's a habit and a good habit for me. So you bring up something that I think is, you, know, you talk about passion and purpose and you 
obviously have this just huge zest for life. But so I think that that is one thing that people are looking for right now is people are trying to find their purpose. And I think the other thing people are looking for right now is we just we have a lot of people that are losing jobs or they're just having a hard time making ends meet. What kind of advice do you have for people who maybe have just been laid off or just they're, they they need some extra money right now? Do you have any tips for yeah. what you do? Talk to Kim. Right. Yeah, you started your own business. I did. And look, it's going. No, no, no. In a sense, that step, step back. Take a look at the picture. What are the unsatisfied needs? Where is the latent demand? How many players in that market? If there are lots of people doing that, don't do it. But if you see something that other people don't see, find your daughter and go into business. But step back. You know, look, I got thrown out of Lehman Brothers. I did everything right for seven years. I mean, it's in the book. And it, and I was say, I, I couldn't have done a better job. But I didn't get along with my boss. And he was a terrible guy. And, and he threw me out, basically. But he didn't fire me, but I decided I'd leave anyway. And I got the dream job. I mean, I got a dream job running a little investment bank. I always said the big difference was... Uh, you know, at Lehman Brothers, that fancy dining room with guys in white gloves and so forth. When I went to Furman Sells, our dining room was a, a hot plate in the, in the conference room, you know. So, so, and my office at, at Lehman Brothers overlooked the harbor and just Liberty. And at, Lehman, at Furman Sells, my office looked overlooked the brick wall. But I had my passion and I had a lot of fun with that. So I stepped back and, and I could have gone from Lehman Brothers to a, another big, fancy Wall Street firm. But I stepped back and said, what do you really want to do? And I said, I want to go to a place where... I can run the store where I can put my principles in, in place, where I won't have a lot of politics. I made a list. I like, by the way, when I call the yellow pad, it's say, I know, dad, let's go to the yellow pad. Go to the <laughs> yellow pad and write down because writing is the only semi, you know, definite form of communication with yourself. So I, I write this stuff down. That's why I say you use the other word, the fifth B, by the way. I think if you find your passions, your principles, your partners and your plans, You'll find your purpose, which is the most important B. I, I've left that out because I like to always work it in when I'm talking about the book. But the book is the book is a, is a fable, though. So it's a story about a boy who goes to an island. Not about it's about me. Goes to an island. He's taken there by a navigator and a captain, mom, mom, and dad. But you know it doesn't say that. He lands on the beach. He meets an older man, Archimedes. His name is Marcus. And they go to the four village, the village of passions. There are all different kinds of passions there. And even he wanders off in an afternoon into a negative passion, comes back, realizes, you know, they're all the passions, not so good. Then they climb the mountain, they go to the village of principles and this religion and philosophy and psychology and a bunch of other stuff. The temple's up there and they talk. And older men and young men keep talking together. And essentially, it's your inner voice that you're talking to. You're really talking to yourself. Passions are powerful and just that drive us forward in life they should be the starting point for plans we create you know what are your passions which of them are most important to you what areas of strength skill and talent which of them overlap with your passions which do not you know things like this that you know that but it's basically i want people to have a conversation with themselves because it is your only your inner voice is your only constant and but i want you to have a vocabulary so you can go back there and if you say i want to follow my passions throughout my entire life Watch how they change, the reasons they change. I think it would be helpful. Same thing. Continue to add, what new principles do I need in order to be successful? 
what kind of partners? You know, you have a lot of success in life. You have a lot of momentum. You have a lot of interest. So it's easy to see why maybe you jump out of bed in the morning excited to get to work on all of these things. What advice would you have for somebody who wants what you have, who wants to be happier, who wants to have that joy, but they're just like super down and feeling sad and about their lives? How do they get themselves out of that? Go, go, what I call writing. Go to that. Go to write down your passion. My witch. Write down, write down. If I have a passion to be in the country, go to the country. You know, go to the mountains, go to the ocean. You know, especially if you're young people, you can do anything you want. You got life ahead of you. Anything. And by the way, there's more opportunity today than there ever has been in the history of the world. You know, when I, when I graduated college, there was enormous amount of prejudice. There was not many scholarships. You know, things were closed. You, you, international was extremely difficult. You know, you didn't have something. Like, you can't do what you're doing right now. No way. You couldn't possibly get this kind of job. So, so that's what I tell people. There's a totally open-ended experience, but you got to find out who you are. That's where you spend those first 18 to 25 years. And you find out what you, but everybody can do something reasonably well. Nobody's, you know, we're all geniuses. And the world out there, if you find something you like doing and you do it reasonably well, you'll be relatively successful. But also where, you know, my kids, my oldest kid, my oldest son couldn't handle cities and things like that. So he ended up in Hawaii. I love Hawaii. He'll end up in Hawaii. He's got, he's got 20 acres. He's, he's a, what you call it, a filmmaker. He's an underwater photographer. He's a, he's a tropical farmer. And he's, a, he's the happiest guy. You know, he's got his own life. It's different. But he took off. He, has, he, has, he went there on his honeymoon and said, why do I want to go anyplace else? But, but his biggest, and he also said, he knew what his problems were. He just doesn't like crowds of people. And we were, he was born in Los Angeles, in the worst place possible. So, you know, each person is different. My, old, my middle son is in, is in Colorado. He loves to ski, mountain bike, and so forth. You know, so step, if you're down on yourself, and especially if you're young, step back and say, you know, what's the next step? Where can I use that? What do I really want to do? And do it. I know so many young people, though, who I can see that they can just pick up and move and go and, you know, start over somewhere. But they will throw every excuse at you. I don't have the money. I I have my job won't let me go. You know, just all the reasons why. How do you like give them that nut? You show them my book. No, there you go. You give them examples. You give them examples. You're an example. You know, you've taken a shot there. Two years ago, you obviously were doing something else, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you give them examples, and, and and there are so many examples out there. That's one reason I've done this book. I want. I mean, I got a letter the other day from somebody's mother saying my daughter was completely lost. She didn't, didn't know what to do. She read your book and she's not going to college. You know, mm-hmm. so this, and that, then again, that's what pays for me writing my book. Otherwise, I would forget all this. I keep telling my wife, this is an ego trip. I'm going to close the operation. She, my wife keeps saying, Ed, you're, you're changing. You're helping people do it. By the way, if you help one person, it's worthwhile. And my publicist does the same thing. And I'm getting, you know, I got, I got 200 five-star ratings, you know, so 15,000 books, and I'm a non-celebrity, you know, which is very important. A bull is just, you're not a celebrity, you know, don't expect, but I'm getting reviews that are quite good, but I'm also getting people to really think about, you know, making these kinds of decisions. And, and that's why this book, if you, if you sat down and wrote, wrote down all those things, you know, and there's got to be also family, 
no matter what you say, there's always Uncle Harry Ampertil in some town, someplace, who's you know been relatively successful in the family. Go and see him. Go ask questions. You know, uh, and if see somebody, somebody's down on themselves, you know, is there somebody in your family or among your friends that's successful? Call them up and sit down and ask them what's going on. I mean, my daughter brings in almost all of her friends. Come and see me. Talk to me. So find someone you can talk to, someone you respect. And by the way, nobody will turn you down. You call up and say, I'm lost. You know, I really need your advice and people will, will turn up. So if you find a successful person, they'll give you some of the kind of things I've just given you. And they may even say, look, come with me. We're going to, we'll start a restaurant together, whatever it is. But you have to tell me who you are, what you really like to do. And, and there are, there are some people that a good population, which I probably can't help. It's another good way, you know, but I, I guarantee you that person with a coach or a friend or something can move ahead. I've seen it so many times. Love that. Okay. Two last things I have for you. One, tell people where you want them to connect with you at. If it's a, the book sales or a newsletter or wherever you want them to connect. And well, then just give us any final thought that you'd like to end with just amazon and amazon but you go to amazon there you can buy the book uh by the way i highly recommend if you're not a good reader like i am the audible version is fabulous bob shapiro does a great job uh and he's doing some of my second book as well uh i have a website i'm the only agent in the world ed agent com, and it's pretty well pretty robust and if you don't want to read the book there's enough stuff in there that maybe will help you out but I think reading the book would be the best thing. Last thought is to recognize fully that, you know, it is all your responsibility. And it really is, if you write it down and follow it, it can be fun. But to recognize that it isn't easy. And every, every time you fall down, just say to yourself, I know it's not easy. And, but make sure that you just sometimes just have to change. You look, you look at, you know, artists that go look to Paris in the 8th, 19th century, because that's where the paintings were. Essentially, the other thing is, I think, go to some place where there are people doing things that you want to do, or get involved with people who are doing things you want to do. And never be afraid of asking someone for help. Wish I had something better. Oh, this has been amazing. You need to go on a world tour where they book you into stadiums so you can spread <laughs> your inspiration. I love talking to you. Thank you so much. Well, my last, last word is uh, may the force be with you. Thank you for joining me for season four of Power Up Your Performance. If you like this episode, please share it with a friend, rate, review, and follow. Dream big and get out there and explore.